This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. The following episode contains graphic descriptions of abuse that may be triggering to some listeners. It also contains real audio and interviews presented on television from the era containing outdated and insensitive terminology with reference to the mentally handicapped. While an incredibly important story to tell, listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Pennsylvania, 1968. These are some of the sights and sounds of Penhurst, the state institution for the mentally retarded. It's located in Spring City, Chester County. In 1908, when the institution first opened, the man in charge bitterly complained to the state that the conditions were already overcrowded. This is the voice of Bill Baldini, a local reporter from Channel 10 News in southeastern Pennsylvania. In the 18th century, the mentally retarded were often ignored, punished, and exploited. Today, things are supposed to be different. Bill received an anonymous tip which led him to Penhurst State School. What he found would rock the world. Now we ship them 25 miles out of town to a state-operated institution and forget them while they decay from neglect. This is the story of Penhurst State School, the shocking yet true tale behind one of America's most haunted landmarks. The 2,800 children, young and old alike, residing within the confines of Penhurst are for the most part protected from society and the granite wall of ignorance and social blindness protects society from them. These unfortunates are being deprived of their dignity and self-respect. Why? Because only a very, very few seem to care. The children, as they are all called, who are rotting in their cages cribs and beds can thank society for their dreadful plight. We have forsaken them, not in the sense of what we have done to them, but because of what we have failed to do on their behalf. They have been abandoned and placed at the mercy of the state. In the case of Penhurst, the state has failed. Penhurst State School and Hospital originally known as the Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic, was an institution for mentally and physically disabled individuals of southeastern Pennsylvania located in Spring City. This state-funded school and hospital center 
was at the heart of the human rights movement that revolutionized the country's approach to health care for the mentally and physically handicapped. This facility was one of the most striking examples of the maltreatment that was characteristic of such institutions. At one point, papers labeled it the shame of Pennsylvania. After 79 years of controversy, it closed on December 9, 1987. Penhurst first opened its doors in November of 1908. Penhurst was once seen as a model institution and was a product of a self-proclaimed progressive era when the solution to dealing with disability was forced segregation and sterilization or forced quarantine. Since the 18th century, people with illness and disabilities were labeled as defectives. As late as 1820, such defectives, along with other more dependent groups, such as the elderly, the sick, or the poor, were grouped together and sold off to the lowest bidder. In 1913, the Commission for the Care of the Feeble-Minded was organized to take into consideration the number and status of the feeble-minded and epileptic persons in the state of Pennsylvania, and to determine a placement for construction of a facility to care for those residents. This commission discovered 1,146 feeble-minded persons in insane hospitals and 2,627 residing in almshouses, county care hospitals, reformatories, and prisons who were in immediate need of specialized institutional care. This commission boldly stated that those with disabilities were, quote, unfit for citizenship and furthermore posed a menace to the peace. From 1903 to 1908, the first buildings on the Penhurst location were constructed on 634 acres of Crab Hill in Spring City, Pennsylvania. In total, more than 20 buildings make up the sprawling campus of Penhurst. Regardless of age, all patients were referred to as children, although the average age of the patients was actually 36. Of those patients, it was also reported that most spent on average 21 years of their lives at Penhurst. Patients at Penhurst were grouped into several general categories. Under the classification of mental prowess, one was listed as either imbecile or insane. There was no other option. Physically, the patient could be declared as either epileptic or healthy. Due to pressure to accept not only the mentally and physically handicapped, but also immigrants, criminals, and orphans who could not be housed elsewhere, Penhurst became overcrowded within only a few years, essentially housing all of the society's undesirables. Like many similar facilities of the era, Penhurst functioned almost completely independently from the rest of society. It operated its own power plant, policed its own grounds, and produced its own food. Any additional needs were supplied by a railway line that connected the campus to the outside world. The faculty could operate without any interaction with the surrounding community, and that was the way the local community preferred it. By the mid-1960s, Penhurst had been open for 50 years. It now housed 2,791 people, most of them children, which was about 900 more than the administration thought the buildings could comfortably accommodate. I spoke with the superintendent of Penhurst, Dr. L. Pekonsky, about the overcrowded conditions at the institution. Yes, our rating capacity has 
1984. How many people do you have? We currently have 2,791. How many people do you need here at Penhurst? I'd like to see our 1,500 people on our, uh, in our uh, personnel complement. And uh, in order to pay these extra 700 people, we'd probably need uh, about $4 million. Doctor, when was the last time the Secretary of Health and Welfare or the Governor visited here at Penhurst? Secretary of Welfare was here approximately six weeks ago. What was his what were his comments after he saw the deplorable conditions, the rundown facilities, the overcrowding, the lack of help? Did he promise any money or help from the state? He said that if we needed money, he would see that we got it. And you need four million dollars. Again, ideally. I don't I don't intend Penhurst is going to get four million dollars. I think we're going to get some help. I also spoke with the business manager here at Penhurst, Elmer McSurdy. I questioned him on the cost of repairing the buildings. Can't touch a building unless you're ready to spend a million or a million and a half dollars. Now, as long as the buildings stand the way they are, the law doesn't require that they come in and close it down. Some of them should be closed down, shouldn't they? <laughs> I presume if the uh, labor industry were to inspect them as they stand now with the idea in mind that they must meet their requirements, they would be closed. Bill Baldini from the local Channel 10 News television station got the tip and made it out to Chester County to see the institution. He shortly returned with the camera crew, quote, and we started shooting and my crew was mortified. I mean, I had trouble keeping them on the job because they were literally getting sick from what they saw, Baldini recalls. His five-part series aired on local television in Philadelphia in 1968, entitled Suffer the Little Children. The reports showed images of naked, emaciated residents swaying back and forth to their own internal rhythms or curled up in balls. The children were shackled to their beds. To this day, Baldini cannot forget the images that he saw. Johnny, can you talk? Yes. Do you like it here at Penhurst? No. Why not, John? Um, Let me ask you this, John. Do you remember living anywhere except Penhurst? No. Do you like talking to the people up here? Yeah. Why, John? And they'd like to talk to me. How about the other kids, the ones that can talk? Do they like to talk to you, too? Yes. Do you like to talk to them better than the kids up here? Yes. Why are you here in Q2, John? I did something where I wasn't supposed to be doing. So they punished you and put you here? Yes. Do they do this all the time to you, John? Yes. This boy, was he mentally retarded when he came to Penhurst? He was mentally retarded in the sense that he uh, did not receive uh, proper education. He came from parents that were uh, delinquent themselves. In other, uh, words, in other words, this boy was normal as far as his mind and being retarded was concerned. He can progress to a normal level. But he never will as long as he's here at Penhurst, is that right? 
I cannot say that because uh, what are the chances? Chances are poorer here than they would be where they have a program set up for this type of case. Jim Conroy, a medical sociologist, arrived at Penhurst a couple of years later to research developmental disabilities. He recalls, I drove up in 1970 in my dad's blue Chevy, and I saw a place with 3,700 people in it, which was built for far, far fewer. And I saw things that I will never forget. Despite the high number of patients requiring special care, the state provided the institution with meager funds. There were very few doctors, nurses, and orderlies available to meet the patient's needs. Many patients spent their days and nights trapped in metal cribs in horrendous conditions. Others were so desperate for human contact that they went to great lengths for attention by injuring themselves or even smearing themselves with their own feces in the hopes of a bath. Some zoos in the United States spend more money for the daily upkeep of their large animals than the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania allows Penhurst to spend on its 2,800 retarded children. Five of the largest zoos spend $7.15 per day on their wards. Penhurst can only afford $5.90. By the way, 80% of that $5.90 pays the administrative costs at the institution. This leaves a meager 75 cents to provide for the basic day-to-day -day needs of the retarded. Cruel punishments were common at the facility. Overworked staff responded to unruly patients by drugging them into submission or chaining them to their beds. Doesn't this degrade the person who is being disciplined to the point that he may regress? I doubt it very much. Uh, actually, what we're trying to do is, uh, is degrade him to a certain extent amongst his uh, uh, fellows here. Uh, they... Uh, make fun of them then for a while afterwards. But uh, I don't think there's anything inhumane about it or anything of that sort. How else do you deal with patients that are hyperactive? Uh, I have given some of them uh, intravenous pentobarbital sodium on occasion. Otherwise, they would do harm to themselves and others. In other words, you drug them? Absolutely. Other residents were isolated for such long periods of time that they regressed and lost their will to speak, fight, or even live. One particularly harsh rule chastised patients for biting. When a patient bit someone for the first time, he or she was reprimanded. But if it happened again, the patient was sent to a dentist who would pull out all of his or her teeth. Thousands of teeth were removed in a rusty dental chair that still sits in the countless tunnels beneath the Penthurst complex. Probably the most chilling scene in the 30 minutes of documentary footage found in the TV10 report showed one of the hospital's physicians describing how he dealt with a particularly vicious bully who had brutalized one of his fellow inmates. Dr. Jesse Fear relates one instance he was directly involved in. This one day I was running dispensary and one of the boys came in there and he had an awful big welt on the back of his head. Boy told me he did it. <clears throat> when dispensary was over, I came out the back way and there was this Ernie sitting on a railing and I was really hot and bothered at the time. And I said, listen, you so-and-so, you touch one of my boys again and I personally am going to take care of you myself. 
Who did this, Doctor? Uh, uh, dependent? I, no, no, no. Oh, no it was one patient. of the patients hurt another patient. Yeah. I uh, Ernie was a patient. So uh, he says, "You don't dare to don't touch me. Uh, there's nothing you can do to me." I says, "Well, before this day is out, you're going to find out what I can do for you." And then I had to start thinking about what I could do. I didn't know what I could do. So about one o'clock, a detail man came in, and I asked him what the most painful injection was that he had that wouldn't do any harm to the patient, of course. And I set this up and got him over on his cottage about seven o'clock that night. And I forced him. I mean, I talked him into getting down in the bed. I didn't use any abuse on him at all. And gave him this injection, and he really hit the ceiling over that. From this point on, it was fairly inevitable that the hospital would eventually need to close down. But it took two decades of legal actions, federal judgments made and overturned, and the growing financial crisis for the place to be shuttered. What would you like? If I can give you anything I could in the world, what would you want? Uh, I'd like to get out of Penhurst. If you can have anything in the world, what would you want? But I'd like to have... But I'll tell you this, I'd have a little bit of money myself. Would you rather have money or would you rather leave Penhurst? I'd rather leave Penhurst. Even if you didn't have any money? That's right. How about the people who don't live in Penhurst? Do you think they care about you? No. Do you have a lot of visitors, Calvin? No, I don't have nobody to be here. It's not bad. I've been in these institutions when I came to Viber. I was a little baby. When was the last time you had a visitor here? 1940. 1940. They walk out on me. Who walked out on you, Galvin? My sister did. May 30th, 1974. The allegations of abuse at Penthurst led to the first lawsuit of its kind in the United States. A federal class action, Halderman versus Penhurst State School and Hospital, which asserted that the developmentally disabled in the care of the state have a constitutional right to appropriate care and education. Terry Lee Halderman had been a resident at Penhurst, and following multiple episodes of abuse, she and her family filed suit in the federal district court. The suit started after Terry had visited her parents at home and was found to have unexplained bruises. Although the case was not expected to reach the level it did, the courts later found the conditions at Penhurst were unsanitary, inhumane, and dangerous and that Penhurst used cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. The case would eventually reach the United States Supreme Court. April 1st to June 1st, 1977. Halderman v. Penhurst is tried. The Honorable Raymond J. Broderick rules in favor of the residents, declaring that forced institutionalization of persons of disabilities is unconstitutional. The district court determined that Penhurst provided, quote, such a dangerous, miserable environment for its residents that many of them eventually suffered physical deterioration and intellectual regression during their stay at the institution. In 1987, Penhurst finally closed its doors. From 1908 to 1987, about 10,600 people lived at Penhurst. We don't know for sure how many people died there, but it is estimated to be probably about half. Why do you think Penhurst is in the condition it is? 
I think Pennhurst is in the condition it's in because nobody cares. The general community either doesn't know or doesn't want to know what the situation is out there. Many of the children are victims of neglect of their own family, and in many instances it's almost understandable because the parents have no choice in the matter. And it must be a dreadful, dreadful feeling for a parent to know that their own child is living under such conditions. People may not even want to say anything about it because they may be afraid of reprisals. But this condition, this, this, this horrible, horrible condition at Pennhurst must not be permitted to exist. It is, without a doubt, one of the worst residential facilities in the country. It received a very low rating from the American Association for Med Mental Deficiency. There is no reason in this day and age, with federal funds available, for such a place to exist. And if you have to lay the blame somewhere, you have to lay it on a number of people. The people that are running it, the state, and the general community because people must begin to care about their fellow man. When Pennhurst closed, it suffered fewer invasions than some other abandoned Pennsylvania hospitals, due in part to the presence of a National Guard post and Veterans Hospital on part of the property at the time. Today, the place is in the hands of private owners and at the center of an unusual controversy. One of its current functions is as a haunted house attraction called Pennhurst Asylum, a use which has generated concern among those who view it as a deeply disrespectful use of the building that caused harm to so many. The present owners are taking steps to reverse the 23 years of damage wrought by time and vandalism to the remaining buildings. Timothy Smith, the son of the facility's owner, expressed a desire to restore the better portion of the property, with the eventual goal of creating a museum and historical tour open to the public. In such a way, the place could finally serve some good purpose, educating the public and the heirs of previous generations, and commemorating all the lives that were spent there. If you are like me, and have had an interest in creating your own podcast, but don't really know where to get started, let me tell you about Anchor. Anchor is the completely free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once you've finished recording, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard across all podcast streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership right from your very first episode. It's everything that you need to make and distribute a podcast all in one place. To get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, Paranormal Weirdos. I truly hope you're enjoying this week's episode so far. If you're enjoying When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, I humbly welcome you to consider making a financial contribution to the When Walls Can Talk tip jar to ensure I can continue to create episodes like this one for seasons to come. Your financial support helps to cover operating costs like recording equipment, editing software, marketing materials, music rights, and helps with the purchase of books, historical publications, and research materials to ensure that every episode is as professional and as well-constructed as we possibly can. 
If you're interested in making a small contribution, and let me tell you that no amount is too little, please feel free to hop on over to PayPal where you can tip us through my email, jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Cash App through money sign Jeremy Haig. That's money sign J-E-R-E-M-Y-H-A-I-G. There's also a support link in the show notes for this and every episode where you can support us directly as well. Thank you so much for listening to my little sales pitch and for sticking with me through this episode so far. And now, let's get back to the show. So what has become of Penthurst in the days since its closure? As time has passed, more and more information has come to light surrounding the maltreatment of its former residents. A much-kept secret is that in the early 18th century, doctors submitted the Penthurst residents to experiments in eugenics. Eugenics is defined as the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as more desirable. Developed largely as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century, especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled peoples, and other minority groups. In the 1990s, Penhurst had a massive squatter population, due in part to its closure only several years prior, and the patients knowing no other place to call home, no family to return to. Many came back to Penhurst and spent some time living in the decaying structures, watching as nature and the elements reclaimed the buildings as their own, dooming at least six as of now for demolition. Because of the unbelievable amount of suffering that occurred inside the walls of Penhurst Asylum, it's no surprise that over the years people have reported having terrifying experiences with the souls who perished at the hospital. There are so many locations at Penhurst that are said to be haunted within the 20 buildings that still stand, but among the most noteworthy and most active is the infamous Quaker Building. Known for housing the individuals the staff deemed most difficult to manage, all over the building shadows stalk you from the darkness, and the ghost of a little girl on the second floor has, on more than one occasion, scratched visitors with unseen hands. The basement is also home to a massive spirit known to call himself King. Thought to be a former janitor whose aggressive voice has been captured often, he tends to be particularly aggressive to women who visit his space. Many smell smoke when he is nearby, feel violently ill, or report things being thrown at them out of the darkness from unseen sources. On a maintenance walkthrough, the 21-year-old son of the property's general contractor stopped the team dead in their tracks and pointed up at a second-story window on the Franklin building. All three individuals saw someone standing in the window and clearly watched as the white curtains were pushed apart and a dark figure appeared, silhouetted in its wake. Immediately they searched the building and the tunnels beneath and found nothing. Upon further inspection, they discovered the curtains themselves were protected behind a thick metal mesh screen, which prevented any human hands from touching the drapes they had just seen moving with their very own eyes. The Mayflower Building, currently home to the haunted house attraction Penthurst Asylum and its main offices, is also extremely active. The Mayflower Building houses an extensive collection of artifacts, 
and personal belongings found across all the different buildings in the complex and displayed for guests to imagine life as a resident. The Ghosts of Mayflower, a Penhurst Haunting, written by Tamara Lawrence, documents one employee's experience working an entire season on the second floor all alone and the things that she witnessed. She records seeing ghosts of a nurse who gives invisible shots, a girl who likes to dart into corners and audibly call for her mommy, and a man who sits alone in the common room. Devon Hall, formerly one of the largest and most crowded dormitory halls, also contains rows upon rows of dark classrooms where summoning circles are found on an extraordinarily regular basis. The basement walls are covered in paintings done by the children themselves while trapped here, an eerie moment in time that peels and flakes away from the crumbling bricks like scabs on an open wound. Over time, Devon has developed a darker poltergeist and malevolent energy and drives even the bravest employees out and confuses even the most developed of mediums. Countless miles upon miles of tunnels connect the many buildings within the Penhurst complex and stretch out like a spider's web. These were used to move residents from one building to another out of sight, or even more notably out of earshot, of the rest of the patients. Needless to say, these tunnels are believed to be the location of countless unspeakable acts of abuse and neglect, and are the location of a massive portion of the paranormal experiences reported here. The tunnels have such constant sounds and movements that even the building's management and security avoid it as much as possible. Rockwell Tunnel, yet another access point to the milky blackness inside the Penhurst Tunnel System, contains an entity who has named himself Skippy, an aggressive and energetic entity who has been known to attack women and send people from the tunnel with visible bite marks and hair literally pulled out of their heads. Often people will hear the sounds of children screaming or crying, and when they go to investigate the sound, there's no one there. Over the years, the ghosts of both ex-staff members and patients have been witnessed by visitors, and these interactions are rarely harmless. People leave Penhurst emotionally distraught, scratched, touched, and bring home feelings of hostility. If you are brave enough, you can visit the asylum and not only take a self-guided tour, but also spend the night investigating the ghosts of what is considered to be the most terrifying building in North America. Penhurst was added to the National Register of Historic Places and Pennsylvania's list of the most at-risk Pennsylvania properties, as well as the International Coalition of Sites of Conscious, a worldwide network of historic sites specifically dedicated to remembering struggles for justice. The collective cries of Penhurst still echo throughout the collapsing structures and on through the decades, changing the landscape of mental health awareness forever. We owe it to the memories of all who suffered there to tell their stories, share their voices, and to make sure that we never again live in a world where this neglect and abuse can exist unchallenged. The ones that speak detest the inhumane conditions and hunger for the slightest sign of affection. However, some of them have become so callous to their plight, they've all but given up. They are alone, alone in a world that seems to lack all compassion. Joe, how long have you been in Penhurst? Do you know how long you've been here, Joe, that you remember? I was, I was 19 when I first 
Yeah. How old are you now, Joe? Twenty. You want to go home? Yeah, I like to. Who's going to take you home? Nobody. Why, Joe? They don't want me to. You mean the people don't want you to go home with them? No. Does anyone ever come and visit you, Joe? No, they don't. Would you like somebody to visit you? Yes. What would you like most in the whole world? The whole world? This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Hegg. In this episode, we gratefully acknowledge audio content from the historical 1967 TV series, Suffer the Little Children, filmed by news correspondent Bill Baldini and property of WCAU-TV. We hope you enjoyed this historical and paranormal re-examination of the Penhurst State School. Please don't forget to share this podcast, subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes, and rate the show wherever you listen. As a one-man operation, your support and feedback mean the world to me and helps more listeners find our stories. Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com, to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at WhenWallsCanTalk with underscores for spaces or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, paranormal adventures, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk. <laughs>